Well, good morning and welcome on this important day. It's always important because every Sunday is Resurrection Day. That's why we worship on Sundays. But it's a special day in our calendar, of course, as we think of Palm Sunday. So thank you for joining us for this important uh, time. And if you're online, thank you so much for joining us there too. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. If you want to use one of the Bibles we have uh, provided here, I think it starts on page 942. 942. And we'll be looking at a number of selected passages from this important New Testament book. As most of you know, the, uh, this is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is really a commemoration of the day that Jesus walked into Jerusalem to the sound of crowds singing and, and quoting scriptures that really were about him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. So hosannas rang out, and, and the Bible also tells us that interesting detail that they, they spread uh, palm branches in front of him as he was riding on that uh, donkey's colt, and, and it was a way of honoring somebody. So clearly his life had had an impact, and people were celebrating, some people were celebrating who he was, but not everyone. Because there was another group of people who was deeply opposed to him. And so five days later, on what we call Good Friday, Jesus was crucified. Excruciating, torturous, cruel, humiliating form of execution. From a human standpoint, it was a terrible injustice besides tragedy. He was innocent. And yet, from God's perspective, it was exactly what God had forever planned. So we want to look at the important reason why God would plan that Jesus had to die on the cross. Why did he die? And this is the important step for each of us. What must we do to respond to what he did for us? Because how we respond to what he did in this central event of history is what will determine where we will be one moment after we die. It's that important, so we cannot get this wrong. The, uh, the book of Galatians, 2,000 years ago, was written after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. It's written to a, uh, some area churches in a region called Galatia where Paul, the apostle, had gone and presented the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his death on the cross. And so it was an important group of churches that had heard the gospel clearly, but then some people had come along and begun teaching something that was not clear about this most important thing. They had confused the people about the most important thing that Jesus came to do. And, and my concern this morning for everyone who might hear this is, are you confused about the most important thing, the thing that will determine where you will be one moment after you die? Do you know, personally, do you know for sure that you will be in heaven one moment, one minute into eternity? If you, for any reason, are uncertain, please listen carefully to what God's Word says. And there will be people in this room who will be praying for you in particular to understand that clearly. 
Chapter 1 of Galatians then, verses 3 through 5, where Nate began to read, Grace and peace to you, he says, as he writes to these churches, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will, that's the plan of God the Father, God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the key issue here is that he is, he is acknowledging the most important issue that Jesus Christ gave himself, that's the cross, gave himself for our sins to rescue us. The question you have to ask yourself, have you been rescued from your sins? Because it's the main thing that Jesus came to do. And to rescue us from this present evil age. Now that, that points clearly in part to what we're experiencing around us. Did you realize that every problem in the world is due to sin? Every problem. The reason there is oppression or crime or bitterness or stealing or conflicts or any kind of immorality or perversion is all because of sin. So sin is really responsible for our relational problems, moral problems. It's responsible for our societal problems. It's even responsible for our physical problems. Do you know that sin is the reason why there is disease and hurt and injury and ultimately death? Romans 5.12, Paul was writing to a different group when he said, sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through or because of sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So sin is the cause of all problems, including death. And since Adam, there have been no non-sinners to fix the problem of death, except one. The only non-sinner ever to enter this planet is Jesus Christ. And he's the one who came to rescue all of us who are the victims of our own sin. And he came to rescue us. Have you been rescued? The rescue that he refers to here cannot simply refer to this life. Though indeed, because indeed, we still have conflicts, we still have diseases. And and so if he came to fix only the things in this earth, then it didn't work. He is clearly referring to rescuing us out of this evil age because he's going to bring us into the eternal home where we will be forever. Please remember, this life is very brief. And eternity is forever. And so Jesus came to give himself for our sins to rescue us from this evil age in spite of all the goodness that we might experience in the world that God created for us. We needed to be rescued from this evil age with all of sin and its effects so that we could be forever in heaven with him. But the problem was sin. And Jesus came to give himself for our sins. So we can understand why then in the next several verses, this message of Jesus rescuing us from sin is called the gospel, and when you read the word gospel in the New Testament, you're actually looking at the Greek word that means good news. Gospel, good news is the same thing. 
But interestingly, you will notice as we keep reading, while verses 3, 4, and 5 have a kind of an excitement and a celebration of how Jesus came to give himself for our sins and to rescue us, the tone that Paul uses now changes. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel or good news at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned or accursed. And verse 9 basically repeats that. If anyone's preaching a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned or accursed. Wow, that's extremely strong language. And the reason is that the worst thing we could ever get wrong would be the gospel. What happened at the cross? How do we respond to what happened at the cross? How can we know for sure we're going to heaven when we die? There is nothing that would be more important. And that's why he has such vehement language. The term uh, accursed or condemned is the Greek word anathema, which basically says, may God judge them for confusing you. May God judge them. What would be worthy of God's judgment? In our current society, we are taught and told that we should be tolerant of what other people believe. Listen carefully. There's a big difference between being loving and tolerant towards people who believe different than to be tolerant of the wrong things people believe. Do you see the difference? We must indeed be gracious and loving towards all people, as was God who so loved the world. But it's a very different thing to be tolerant and gracious towards people who believe wrong than to be tolerant towards the wrong things that people believe. Our Creator God, who made the heavens and the earth and then put the, His own image in us, made us into his creation that can communicate with him. We are made like him so we can think about him. All the rest of the world, the, the, the created world, cannot think about God. Plants don't think about God. Your, your, your pets don't think about God. But we are made in his image. There is one creator God, and that one creator God saw our problem of sin. He says, I'm going to send you the one solution to your sin problem so that you can be with me forever in spite of the fact that you are sinners. And so since there is just one way to be rescued, and it was through Jesus Christ, his eternal son, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us, since there's only one way, we cannot ignore or soften the importance of that one way. If a ship is sinking, and there are three inflatable life rafts, if the man who keeps the life rafts knows that two of them have holes in it, and if anybody would get into those life rafts, they would perish, what must he do? He cannot tolerate people who believe in the wrong thing. He cannot tolerate what they believe, that is. He would have to say, don't go into those two life rafts, you will perish. 
This is the life raft that will rescue you from drowning. And in a similar way, God has provided the one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the most loving, gracious thing we could ever do is to clearly share about the only life raft, the only way a person can be saved from eternal judgment. And that's why he says, I'm astonished. You're deserting the one who called you. You're turning to a different gospel. And when he says different gospel, it's like he puts little quotations because he says it's not really a different good news because it's actually not good news at all. If you distort, pervert, change, add to the simple message of the gospel, it's no longer good news. And that's what's causing Paul's intense and passionate opposition because you ruin it if you add anything to the simplicity and the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because as we sang, Jesus paid it all, didn't he? Verse 6 says, God called you by his grace. That's exactly the opposite of calling you on your merit. The reason we can be right with God is not because of anything we do, but because of his grace. It means undeserved. You earn your paycheck. But after you earn your paycheck, if you have children at home, you go and you buy groceries, and you feed your children using money that you earned, and they receive it for free. In fact, you will not accept a nickel from their piggy bank, will you? Because you are the one who earned it. They are the ones who receive it by grace. Likewise, we are the ones who must receive salvation as a gift of God's grace that he, Jesus Christ, earned for us. And listen, this is very important. We cannot add a nickel's worth of our own merit, good works, or anything else to the sufficiency and the completeness of what Jesus did for us. Grace means absolutely free. Turn ahead to chapter 2, verse 16. Two sixteen. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. Did he say that like two and a half times? Because he needed to make this same thing very clear to the church at, 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 at Galatia that, he, that, he will, that we're going to see he, he said to the church at Rome, that he said to the church at Corinth, that he said to the church in Ephesus. Because the one thing that people confuse over and over in his day is exactly the same things that people are confusing in religious institutions all over the world today. Adding something or changing the good news and the simplicity and the sufficiency of what Jesus did for us at the cross. So he says, a man is not justified by observing the law. This is a Jewish context, so they thought, well, if they follow all the rules of the Old Testament, they would be justified. And the word justified is a word that simply means to be declared or made right before God. So it's the big deal. 
It's the big deal of how can sinful man be made right with a holy God so that somebody otherwise sinful can be in heaven, which is absolutely perfect and holy. And so he is telling us the only way that a sinful person can be made right before God is, first of all, what it's not. Not by obeying all the religious rules of even the Old Testament. Because, in fact, that was never, as we'll see in a moment, what they were even attended to accomplish. Instead, how are we justified? Three times he says it in this passage. By faith in Christ Jesus, by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in Christ. Repetition means something. In fact, there are some 100 times throughout the New Testament where the term faith or believe, it's the same word in, in the language of the New Testament, faith or believe in Christ is the only step, the only condition, the only response by which a person can be forgiven and have forever in heaven. So we need to understand that. So the short version of what he's saying here is that you are not made right with God by religion, by rule keeping, by rituals, or by doing anything. You are only made right by faith in Christ. Let's make sure we understand what it's not. So in, in the book of Romans, he needed to make the same point to Christians or unchristian, non-Christians as well who were hearing this for the first time. He wrote to them, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You may be among the many people who have said or thought this, Well, I think I'll go to heaven when I die because I keep the Ten Commandments. That would be one piece of the Old Testament law. And so what they're probably thinking, and maybe you've thought that, well, I don't commit murder, I don't commit adultery. And most good people have avoided those two. But also in the Ten Commandments are stealing, lying, envying. I don't know anybody that's completely passed that test. So, so, so at tax time, you, you really have reported everything every year exactly as it should be. Because anything else would be stealing. And you've never lied or you've never told a half-truth or, or, or kept someone from knowing the truth because you would be criticized or then you've lied. And you mean you've never envied some other, somebody else's car or house or clothes or spouse. You've, you've never envied because if you have, then you, you've coveted. And so we see the truth of this verse, that the purpose of the law was not to make us right before God. It won't work. Instead, the purpose of the law was to make us conscious of sin and make us realize we needed God's only solution. And that is because he would send Jesus Christ. So the Ten Commandments don't make us holy, don't make us right. They just prove that we are not. And do you realize that this is exactly opposite of what the religions of the world teach. And in fact, much of what is called Christianity would teach. Jewish people would try to follow the Old Testament. That won't make you right with God. Muslims try to follow the Quran. That won't make you right with God. Buddhists try to follow the writings of Buddha. That won't make you right with God. In so many places where there's even a cross on a church, 
What is actually being taught in so many cases are that by being good or keeping the Ten Commandments or being baptized in a particular way, maybe by that particular church, that there, if you do all these things, then you will probably make it to heaven. And it's exactly the wrong teaching. It's exactly the opposite. The Bible tells us repeatedly these are sinking life rafts. So I don't know if for you this is new news, but it's certainly good news. To realize that there is nothing we could do. There is nothing we could attain. There is no measure of goodness we could achieve. To ever be right with God makes us realize we are in a helpless situation and we desperately need the rescue of Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. Again, Paul told the Roman church the same thing we've been learning, that we must instead put our trust in Jesus Christ. So I'm, we're going to take a look at this passage and kind of line by different lines, but let's read, read it through together first. So Paul said, in other words, if your righteousness and efforts at righteousness aren't going to cut it, what will? Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of or from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. They were pointing us to Christ. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Ethnicity doesn't matter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody fails to meet the perfect standard. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So let's think this through. All have sinned, first of all, and fall short. Whether a person is religious or not, goes to church or not, whether they go to this church or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or a Baptist church, doesn't matter. We've all sinned and fall short. And if a person is, calls themselves Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or anything else, it doesn't change anything because all have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard that would be required for heaven. So what can be done? What we need is to be justified by his grace. We can only be made right by grace. In other words, we are going to be made right by something that we do not do or deserve or earn. And it's the only basis upon which anybody can be made right with God. So how does that happen? It comes through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word that refers to a price being paid. You've maybe said nothing's free, right? It's true. So if your kids are eating that food, it's not free. So don't waste it or whatever you're teaching because dad or mom had to pay for it. And likewise, as we talk about the free gift of salvation today, we're not talking about something that's without cost. We're talking about something that's without cost to us. But the cost was the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Grace is possible for us because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin on the cross. So, how do we become part of that deal? Verse 22 says clearly, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Faith, believe. 
the righteousness of God is given. That is, so your account and my account that has all the sins, all the failures, far more than we can even imagine, they're all accounted for in God's mind. He knows it all. Nothing's hidden from his sight. But all of that sin can be replaced, deleted, and replaced with the righteousness of God. And that's the only way that we can be made right with God. It's the only way by which we can be forgiven, and we are now going to be in heaven with a completely clean record because we are the righteousness of God on our account. So how does that happen? What does it say? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That becomes the most important issue for everyone that hears this, everyone sitting here or wherever you're sitting. Have you made the step of believing putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If we return back to Galatians, we'll see exactly what, that in, what, it, what, what was accomplished for us. Galatians 3, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. So if you're relying on trying to be good enough, You're under God's curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So if you don't keep it all, you are under God's condemnation. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he paid the price, satisfying God's wrath on sin. And so he literally and legally, eternally, spiritually was bearing the penalty for our sin and God was punishing Jesus, his own perfect eternal son, God become man, on the cross. And so he was bearing the curse of sin for us. And then he says, what I'm asking you to do is simply now put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's make sure we understand what the word faith or believe means. To put your faith in Christ or believe in Christ does not mean that you simply know that something happened. Because there are so many people who would say, in fact, I've heard it repeatedly, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. But then if I turn the question and say, so what are you trusting in for eternal life? I hear answers like this. Well, I'm trying to you know, live a good life and, and I go to church and I help people and I keep the Ten Commandments. Do you see the contradiction? They say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but what are they trusting in? Not that Jesus died for their sins. They're trusting in trying to be a good person. So the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? That's the issue. A couple weeks ago, as some of you know, uh, Priscilla and I went to Denver to see our new grandson, and uh, we flew. And the reason we flew is because we personally don't know how to fly. And so to be able to get to Denver from Milwaukee, we had to get into uh, this tube and sit in this seat and do nothing to power ourselves, but instead completely rely on that plane. And that's exactly what it means to put our faith or, or to believe in Christ, is to realize that there is nothing we can do and to make a choice to step into the sufficiency of what Christ did for us and say, I am putting my trust in Christ and Christ alone. 
What are you trusting in for eternal life? This is personal now, you and God. A review from one more passage that again states it yet another way, Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He makes it very clear. Not by works, so that no one can boast. No one is in heaven bragging, I made it, I deserve to be here. In heaven we'll only be praising him because he paid it all. But the question remains, what are you trusting in for eternal life? As some of you know, I, uh, it's helped me when I first came across this illustration to have three circles. And so I'm just asking you personally, which of these circles represent what you're trusting in for eternal life? C represents Christ, that he died on, our sin, on, on a cross for our sins, took our place, took our punishment. W stands for good works. That would be anything related to religion or church or, or self-merit that you would be trusting in for eternal life. And C plus W is throwing them together. Christ plus good works. What are you trusting in? What, is the, what does that passage say? It's by faith. And it's not of works. In fact, no works at all. That was the very issue that the Judaizers and Galatians were confused about. They said, that's fine if you believe in Christ, but you need to keep the Old Testament rules and rituals, circumcise your babies, keep the Sabbath, don't eat certain meats, keep the festivals. They added something to the sufficiency of the cross. So what are you trusting in for eternal life? If, if God has spoken to you through his word today, that this has become clear, I would urge you, to make a decision now. A decision could be simply an understanding of realizing your need and making a step of faith to put your trust in Christ. A good way to express that would be to express it to God. And so just in the, the quietness of this moment, uh, I'm going to put a couple lines that would represent, that could represent what you want to tell God. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to kneel. But God knows your thoughts. And so if these are your, are your thoughts, your agreements, if this is your decision, this is that moment where you'd be saying, I realize that I am a sinner. Just tell that to God. I realize I cannot earn my way to heaven. I realize Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. This is basic to understanding what you want to now express to God. It's this decision. I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ alone right now. Let's just take a few moments wherever you are, just a little bit of, uh, of quiet. Uh, bow your heads if you want. Look at the screen. Make sure you understand. Let's take a few moments of silence for you to seal this decision.
Heavenly Father, I pray for each person who just now has acknowledged their sin and their need of your eternal salvation. I pray that they would uh, grow in their understanding the clarity of the sufficient, complete payment you have made for their sin, that they're trusting in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Galatians, we're going to touch a couple things briefly, in case you thought you were dismissed now. Touch a couple things briefly that Paul wanted to tell the Galatian church about what that new life looks like, because we are not, not only is our eternal destination changed by faith in Christ alone, but our entire life is changed by that decision. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. For one thing, we have a new identity. 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is staggering. The life I live in the body, that's this life here and now, I live by faith in the Son of God, remember, who loved me and gave himself for me on the cross. So this is moving on past that important decision that hopefully all of us have now made to saying, this is my new life. It's like I was crucified with Christ. So in other words, what happened to Christ 2,000 years ago, I have now participated in that because my sin has been fully atoned. And so the life I live now, it's also bound up with Christ who is alive. And we'll talk about some of that, those issues next week as we celebrate the resurrection in particular. But I now, I now live a different kind of a life because Christ lives in me and through me and living by faith in the Son of God, like it says here, means that just as we must trust in Jesus to have borne our penalty for sin, we can now trust in him to give us the power in, in victory over sin. I live by faith. Sadly, so many believers in Christ have never really experienced or applied this. We can be saved by faith and then try to continually fix our lives by our own efforts. And we're all guilty of that. If I try harder, if I just commit myself, if I just start a new discipline, if I just do this, and it's like having been saved by the power of God, we are now depending on ourselves. And it'll never work. Christ wants to produce supernatural changes within us. How does he do that? Not only do we have a new identity, but turn to chapter 3, verse 26. And chapter 4, we're going to see we have a new capacity our new status is often called being sons of God. Verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's your new status. You're a child of God. You enter his family, so you have a different relationship. Jump down to chapter 4 and verse 6. Because you are sons of God, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit, that's capital S, the Holy Spirit, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Abba was the, uh, the New Testament language way of saying Daddy. Children have a different relationship with their father than anybody else because that's my daddy. And we now have that relationship. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you now have a daddy kind of relationship. And to help you, God sent the Spirit of his Son. So the Father, God sent the Holy Spirit, who's also part of the triune God, 
the Spirit of the Son, who is our Savior. So all three persons of the triune God are involved. And what difference does the Spirit make? We don't have time to study this today, but chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 are the fairly well-known verses about the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. That's, that's supernatural stuff. Because on my own, I am selfish and crabby and worried and succumb to temptation. But because the Spirit lives within me, I can have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. It's an entirely different capacity. Because Christ didn't just die to save me from sin eternally, he died to enable me to live a whole new way. The good news about heaven gets even better when you realize it's also rescuing us in a real sense as individuals. It's rescuing from this evil age now so that we can live right and pure and loving before him. Christianity is under attack for a lot of things. But there is nothing that is more central and core to the attack that Christianity experiences than the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the bottom line of what the enemy, Satan, is all about. Is to attack our trust in the, in the word of God about the core issue between each individual and God of how, do you be, how can you be made right with God. So expect that sometimes that as we proclaim the love of God, we can actually be hated for believing in the exclusive nature of God's love given through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves us eternally. He's the one who is changing us by giving us the Spirit. And this good news, this incredibly exciting reality that you and I can experience as believers and followers of Christ is actually what is going to be opposed. But Paul wants to make the point as he closes this important letter to make sure that no one will compromise that faith in Christ. Go to chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. So he's talking to the Jews who had been told, oh, you've got to follow the rules, and circumcision was one of those. He says, if I was still teaching that you've got to do all this stuff, he says, no one would persecute me. Everybody in society believes, yeah, tell, tell people, any religion is good. Just have some religion, it makes you better. He says, that would never cause persecution. But that's not the case. He says, I'm not just preaching any religion and being better and obeying a certain set of rules. What I'm experiencing is the offense of the cross. And that's why I'm persecuted. You know why the gospel is offensive? The gospel is offensive because the gospel is humbling. The gospel message pulls the rug out of every religious effort, everything that mankind would like to say. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm good enough if I, if I keep, I'm a very good person. It pulls the rug out from everything that we naturally believe to acknowledge I am not the dad who's earning something. I am a child dependent on what God earned for me through Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why Jesus said one time when he had children around, says, you must, be, to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. 
Children have no trouble with gifts. Everything is a gift to them. So he says, you have to become like that. You have to humble yourself to become like a child and receive it like a child. So the offense of the cross he refers to is the offense to human pride. Chapter 6, verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So if you would go back to a, a, a rules and, and good works system, no persecution. But if you believe in exclusively the cross of Jesus Christ, that there's only one way to heaven, you will be persecuted. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Corinthian church. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We realize it's the only way we can be saved. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And finally, he says, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. He says it seems foolish to the Gentiles. We live in a mostly Gentile environment. And so the cross and the exclusive nature of the cross might seem completely crazy. But to us who are being saved, we realize it's the only way to have eternal life. One final verse, chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says boasting would be a bad thing, an arrogant thing, if I could claim to somehow deserve heaven based on what I've done. But he says I can't. I can't claim an iota of merit. I can't add a nickel to what God has provided for me through Jesus Christ. So he says my only boast is in the cross. And so this Easter season, I just invite you to celebrate and enjoy boasting in Christ that he completely paid for our sins on the cross and then proved it when he rose again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are reminded today that we bring nothing worth adding to the cross. We thank you for this uh, completely clear presentation in Galatians where you helped people who were confused and I pray for anyone who's confused, anyone who is clinging to some pride or merit as a basis for eternal life, Lord, that they might understand that you have completely paid it all. And then, Lord, that we would begin to experience that new life. And as we begin to live that new life and, and good works would flow from us that we can just use to say thank you because you are producing that. You are living through me. So we thank you for the beautiful picture you give us of a transformed life. And may it become a reality, reality for us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.